Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. The current corporate trend, as I'm sure you have heard, is to articulate a purpose statement as a way to provide a sense of meaning and purpose for employees. Now, it also creates a sense of pride in the company, and it's a good way to help connect with customers if you do this well. And having a sense of purpose does seem to be an important part of feeling connected to having a sense of fulfillment from the work that you do. And all of this sounds like a great strategy. However, I'm hearing from some of my clients deeper in the organization that they're not quite so connected to that brand new purpose statement that the company has provided. So today, we're going to focus on a comprehensive study that allows us to identify the 10 principles that are important for making work meaningful. I think you're going to both be surprised by the results and at the same time, not surprised at all. And my guests today are Wes Adams. Wes works with high-performing companies to build organizational resilience and leadership capability and deepen employee engagement. And it's all through this notion of the meaningful work lens. He's got two decades of experience growing successful uh, ventures and consulting for Fortune 500s, along with some startups and some nonprofits. And he is a master facilitator at the University of Pennsylvania Resilience Program. If you don't know that, it's one of the most famous around the world. And he's been a featured speaker in all sorts of places, including the Nobel Peace Prize Forum. I find that fascinating. And his work has been covered by the New York Times, Forbes, Business Insider, Fast Company, and others. I should add that Wes also has a passion for social impact, and he helped produce a documentary for HBO called The Outlist. And I'll leave that teaser and let you go check out more of it on your own. Um, Our other guest is Tamara. Tamara, excuse me, let me get the correct pronunciation here, Tamara Miles, and she's also a productivity and meaningful work expert. She helps organizations design systems and create cultures that enable teams and individuals to thrive. And she is the author of The Secret to Peak Productivity, A Simple Guide to Reaching Your Personal Best. Um, She is also an accomplished trainer and international speaker, consultant, and researcher, and has worked with a number of blue chip companies that you would recognize, like Unilever, Microsoft, Google, Best Buy, just to name a few. Her work has been featured in USA Today, Business Insider, Boston Globe, Success Magazine, and many others. Um, Tamara is also a master facilitator at the University of Pennsylvania Resilience Program. So to both of you, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And, you know, good way to remember it's tomorrow, like tomorrow. So. <laughs> I know. I, I'm guaranteed every show to stumble on one word. So it's either a name or a word. And here it is, your name. So, okay. Um, to, starting at the top for me, my favorite question to ask always is why? Why do you care about this work? What's the question you were trying to answer by doing this massive study that you've been involved in? 
So for me, you know, so we met in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, and I went to graduate school because I really wanted to find out what came after productivity, right? I have uh, at that time had 15 years of experience helping leaders, coaching, consulting, helping implement um, productivity systems in organizations and coaching individuals for higher productivity. But I wanted to know what was beyond productivity. What um, what enabled productivity? You know, I, my model in my book is a five step approach to productivity, and at the very top of um, that pyramid, the peak productivity pyramid, is a level I call possibility. And so, I wanted to really understand what that was scientifically, and um, and so I, I had discovered that that was meaningful work, but I didn't really understand what that meant at a tactical level, you know, meaningful work at a theoretical level sounded great, but how could I as a practitioner help leaders make work meaningful? So that's, that's why I went back to school and studied this. Fabulous. I love this. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with clients lately uh, on this notion of productivity and not because I'm interested in more productive systems or processes, I think we lose an enormous amount of productivity and efficiency because we run ineffective meetings. We interact with people in a way that just chews up time and energy and adds stress. And most leaders fail to recognize the knock-on consequences of the stress they carry around in a day-to-day. So I'm with you on possibility and meaningful and productivity. So Wes, why do you care about this work? What's the question you're interested in? Uh, I've spent a a number of years um, building, starting, growing companies. And the part of that work that I always really connected with was developing teams and helping people perform at their highest potential. And I get a lot of personal meaning out of seeing other people succeed. And so I wanted to figure out um, how I could help people do that better. And also in the context of doing work that people were passionate about. I spent um, a number of years before going to graduate school working in the social enterprise sector, and I saw how inspiring it was to have a a purpose in your work, to have a clear um, tie to people that you're helping in your work, and at the same time also saw that it wasn't enough. You know, there's a huge burnout rate in Mm. the social sector. People are very passionate, very dedicated to making the world a better place, and that often happens slowly. Um, victories are few and far between in social justice um, and environmental work um, or in any other kind of socially oriented profession. And, um, you know, it can be really hard. And so just having that mission or that purpose isn't actually enough to sustain you. You know, there are a lot of other things, um, you know, such as belonging to a part of the community or that sense of being able to grow and develop individually um, that, kind of go along with making work more meaningful. And so I went back to school with the idea that I wanted to figure out a framework for that. You know, how could we um, really translate the research that people have been doing on meaningful work into practical application? How can we take that and actually, because I think intuitively people understand that, you know, they want their work to be meaningful, right? It's where you spend a third of your life. So, um yeah, so just understanding how to translate that um, into a, a practical framework. And I had the good fortune of connecting with Tamara while I was there, um, who shares a similar passion, and um, we've kind of taken it from there. 
I love, Wes, that you say burnout is high in the social impact space, and partly because the wins are just few and far between, and you feel like for every cause that I benefit or every community I benefit, there's hundreds of billions more to go, and there's just it feels like it's an enormous process. So it's not just that there's meaning. It has to be some other things along the way. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so tell me about this, the research. You know, so you've got, who did you talk to? How did you go about doing it? Just walk us through the basics. I don't want the scientific paper on the research. I want the cliff note version. Sure. So we decided to do qualitative research. So basically interviewing leaders. Um, and we decided to interview leaders at organizations that were doing this really well already. And so that's called exemplar methodology, because when you learn from the people that are doing it really well, you learn not only what is happening, but also what is possible, right, for every other organization. And so we were excited. And the methodology we use is grounded theory, which, you know, most of your listeners will be familiar with because Brene Brown, that's her style of uh, research. And so with grounded theory, what happens is instead of us starting with a predetermined hypothesis, we let the data kind of tell us what the hypothesis is. So we listen to the interviews, we kind of start coding the data, we see what themes are emerging, and then we continue interviewing, trying to pick up those themes. And so it's a really iterative, very fun process. And so we conducted 12 interviews over the course of a few months. And what happened, we were very excited. We were going to like gallivant through the country and travel and meet all these leaders in person and then COVID hit. And so it was a bummer that we didn't get to do it in person, but also it was kind of a gift because we interviewed these organizations right during the transition. And we learned so much about like how meaningful work contributed to them making these transitions very seamlessly. So it was fascinating. But the organizations that we studied include um, HubSpot, which is always like best places to work, Um, Marriott, Chick-fil-A, Google, Microsoft, Zappos. We try to get a range of um, not only sizes of companies. So our smallest organization was 15.5, which has 150 employees. And the largest one was Microsoft with 750,000 employees. But so we wanted not only a range in the size of company, but also a range in um, different uh, industries. So hospitality, tech, um, education. We did... um, curriculum associates. And so we we tried to get a variety because ultimately we wanted to understand, you know, are there guiding principles that organizations follow to make work meaningful? And can they be, are they universal? Can they be translated into other organizations? And so that was the, that was the methodology. Fair enough. And who did you talk to at these places? I mean, you talk to the CEO or you talking to someone, who, who are you interviewing? Um, Bus, do you want to answer? Okay. So we uh, tried to get, so part of our methodology included, you know, before we went out, we had to get approval from the university and all that. And so we wanted to only interview senior leaders. And so we had some criteria that we met. Um, and mm-hmm. so a lot of times it was CEO. So for curriculum associates, for example, for example, that was the CEO um, for, um, 
better up was a chief of staff who works directly with the CEO. But then for some global organizations, we interviewed um, the head of a unit, a business unit. So for example, for Microsoft, we interviewed the head of the cloud operations and innovation unit. Um, for Microsoft, for Marriott, we actually interviewed Debbie Marriott, who is currently a board member. And so it was a range, but all, you know, either C-level or in charge of a unit. Of a big unit. Okay, that makes sense. And, you know, is this, I'm assuming this is an hour, couple of hours? I mean, how long were they? One hour. So it was one hour via Zoom. We had a list of questions, but we also kind of let the conversation flow. Mm -hmm. We really wanted to hear their stories, right? And so we have so many rich stories that they shared with us. And we expanded on topics. If they mentioned something that, you know, was a theme that was emerging, we would ask a little bit. But on average, it was 52 minutes, um, you know, the average length of the interview. But we had one hour booked with them. Fabulous. How, how do you know that, that the average length of interview was 52 minutes? I had to write that into the, the paper, Wes. I remember that. <laughs> I don't know how you ever managed to get your interviews to be less time. Every time I do the same kind of research and I interview people and it's set for an hour and it's an hour and 45 minutes later, I get to walk out of the room. So yeah. maybe that's because I can't stop talking. Um, any rate, let's see. So the 10 themes out of this, there are 10 themes around what you find it takes to make work meaningful. So I want to run through, I want to know what the 10 are first, and then I want to go back and say how and why, and you can do this in any sequence. Tell me one and tell me how and why, and then we'll go to the next one, however you prefer. Uh, I think we should probably go step by step. That'll, that'll be easier probably to, Understand. I think um, you know one of the things that is not a principle but underlies all of this is the idea of having an articulated purpose and value statement, which is something that you talked about at you know at the beginning um, here. And so the assumption is that that is you know articulated and that that exists for all of these things. Um, one of the one of the things that um, I'm particularly passionate about is. The idea that when you're hiring, you should take values into account. You know, you should really, we often hire for experience or um, perceived capabilities or skills. And, um, you know, the exemplar organizations that we interviewed, almost all of them had a specific process for values screening in the organization. They, they talked about it during the organizational interview process, during the hiring process, um, and they had either an individual or uh, a committee, a part of the HR department that screened particularly for values. And so, for example, at Zappos, there's a, um, there's a separate values interview. And if, you know, if they're hiring an engineer, it's the most skilled, you know, computer engineer that you've ever seen, but they don't pass the values interview, they don't get into the company. So it's, uh, you know, the, the values interview is like the last um, stop on, on that interview train. You have to pass. So, so um, we have competence yeah. and then values. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they exactly. have a particular process. Can you give me an example of a process, either from Zappos or anywhere, of what kind of a process people would use to screen for values? Sure. Because that sounds like a nice idea and extremely difficult to be accurate on. 
Yeah, uh, typically it would be a behavioral based interviewing process. So that's when you're looking for particular examples of how someone has behaved in past situations and you ask them to explain why they made a a decision or not. Usually when you are um, prospective, when you say, how would you behave in in a certain situation? We always like to think that we behave much better (laughs) than we we would, than we actually do. Uh, So it's best to try to understand situations people have been in and um, how they've actually acted in those situations. All right. So if people don't know what behavioral interviews are, I happen to personally believe it's the best in class of interviews. You should always do behavioral interviews. And the general idea is whatever quality I'm looking for or skill, I want to say, for example, tell me a time when you put the customer first, for example, what did you do and how did you do it? Those kind of, you're asking for examples that people would then tell you about what they did. All right, great. So that's one, hire for values, or at least have a screening before you make the final hire consistent with the values that you as a company are trying to live by in your purpose statement. Okay, what's number two? Uh, Number two is about leaders modeling valued behavior. So values, instead of just being words on the wall or things that actually have to live in the organization and they're translated into particular behaviors, um, people throughout an organization look to their managers, their leaders for cues on how to behave. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, not new information, right? But um, leaders, when they are communicating, there's a coherence, there's an authenticity, there's an integrity between the values that are spoken and the way that they behave, the decisions that they made, and that's clear to the rest of the organization. That really increases a sense of meaningfulness. And when it's not aligned when when you say one thing when you do another it's one of the biggest destroyers of meaningful work that there is so it's almost a a requirement for a prerequisite it's necessary but not sufficient for meaningful work all right so i think everybody listening to this who's been managed by somebody would nod their head vigorously and say yes absolutely totally i do not want to work for someone or someone above the chain in me who doesn't actually live the values. But let's also be honest. Sometimes um, the decisions that you have to make as a leader are kind of difficult. Like let's say we espouse teamwork or we espouse diversity. I'll pick my favorite one of the day for the moment. Um, And you sort of generally believe it, but I now have to make a choice between who of two candidates is going to end up or, you know, we have to cut and we're going to end up. It's very easy to say it and it's very difficult to actually do it in the moment. And I can imagine someone who practices their values every single day, but there's still stuff with a tough decision. So now what? What's your advice in that moment? I'm so glad that you brought that up because you're right. It's a complex process. And um, the organizations that we spoke to all think of values as living, growing things, right? They're not just, you know, I believe in integrity and this is the way that it is. Whenever you encounter a new situation, you have to use judgment about 
how you interpret that value and how you act on it. And there are oftentimes when values might be competing with each other, right? right? The, the classic example of this is, you know, your friend is about to get married and, you know, she's like, do you, do, do I look terrible in my wedding dress? And, you know, are you honest? Are you kind? Are you, you know, helpful? Like what's the decision that you make there? Because you probably believe in all of those values, but you have to choose when to, to pull trumps? out certain tools from the tool belt, right? And um, so this is kind of part of a, you know, something that's not, uh, that's kind of incorporated into one of the later principles, which is about growth mindset. It's about um, the idea that you can continue to get better, that people make mistakes, that you can learn from those mistakes and that you mm-hmm. um, have to incorporate that mm-hmm. into the process of, um, you know, being a part of a, an organization and, and being a leader. Okay. And I, I want to jump in too Please. and add, you know, if any of your listeners are parents, right, I think that's that's also a space where you see a huge um, influence of role modeling, right, or, mm-hmm. or acting in accordance with the values. Um, and I think, you know, in these moments where you're making choices and it might seem like you didn't follow a value, the most important and powerful tool that leaders have is transparency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think communicating, right, and saying, you know, I know it may seem like this, and this is why we went this way. So, in your diversity example of going with one candidate instead of another, even though diversity is one of your spouse values, why did you make that decision? Communicate, be clear about it, right? Yeah, and I think. Yeah. You know, even in this hybrid environment now, transparency is emerging as such an important tool for leaders to lean on, to communicate so that people, even from an equity standpoint, don't feel like, you know, second-class citizens if they're remote versus. And so I think like leaning into other tools to make our choices visible is really important. I think that's an important component in creating a culture where the values feel like they're lived, whether people feel like they're cared for and treated well, whether we're trying to build an inclusive culture, whatever, any component of those, even just trying to engage people. I often believe if you can't explain to people why you made the call you made, then you need to be rethinking the call you're making. So... Uh, And I get that we can't always say all the qualifications for one person versus another person. I get that. But you can at least say, I leaned on their connections more than I leaned on their particular competency, or I leaned on their character more than I leaned on this. There's always something. And if not, you need to be rethinking it. Okay. So modeling the values, which is so easy to say, but I love that you've given me a couple of ways of going about doing that one. What's third? So one of the other principles that emerged, and it was uh, really strong, actually, across the board, is this idea of starting strong. The organizations we spoke with have really almost ritualized the onboarding process. They're very thoughtful about the way that they bring in new employees to their team. They make it really special. One of our interviewees um, from BetterUp actually said, like, we treat it almost, you know, it's, it's such an important time when somebody starts at your company. It's almost as important as when they get married. And so we want them to feel really welcome and know that we are excited to have them. And so this 
this was across the board. We heard from Google, you know, we heard from Zappos, we heard from um, from Better Up. All these organizations make that time really special. And if you think about the normal onboarding process, it's you know all the paperwork you have to fill out and the technology you have to learn, and there's like this missing humanity integrated into it. And so it's such a missed opportunities for uh, opportunity for leaders today. It's a principle that we, we weren't really expecting and we were blown away by the things that they do. Yeah, I think an awful lot of people listening would say, what onboarding process? I'm lucky if I have a phone that's working and a computer and an email that I can at least get started with. Right let alone any sort of welcoming process, formal process or explanation about the company. And I know there's regulatory issues and stuff people always have to go through, but that's not the same as an onboarding where you feel welcomed. Also a great chance to demonstrate the values, I'm presuming, in that onboarding. And you screen for them already. So that those all tie up together, I would Absolutely. Think. I mean, and you know, one of the tools that these organizations use very strongly in this onboarding process to bring the values to life is storytelling. So mm-hmm. Zappos, you know, has this, and this was before the pandemic. I don't know how they're doing it now, but they would have these onboarding boot camps. So they would onboard class. You know, classes of employees together from C-level executives to um, entry level, somebody who's like customer service, for example, they would onboard together. They would have a lot of team building events, but they would also bring in different leaders and different employees from different areas of the organizations to come and tell stories about each of their values and how that value showed up, you know, in the organization, how it shows up every day. And so it's one thing to read the words on the wall, like what, okay, we value integrity. Great. But when you hear a story about how integrity is lived in this organization, it really makes a difference, right? I actually have always believed that you could tell what was really happening in a company by understanding the stories that we tell, particularly the stories that people are told when they've just joined a new team. Because we're sitting around for that first lunch or first coffee or saying, you know, kind of ice is broken and we start to say, well, have you heard about? And it may be 10 years ago, but it's still part of the folklore and it's the part of bringing somebody on board, monitoring those informal stories, as well as making sure that the formally told stories are somehow consistent with what you're trying to practice, what you want people to do. Makes a lot of sense to me. I I love that. And if I can jump in, um, you know, I think that like the origin stories of an organization and the lore connected to how it developed is such a critical part of communicating that culture. And um, one of the things that popped up in our interview with HubSpot was they actually have a place where they store all of those stories that's kind of accessible. They tell them during onboarding, but also it's captured and um, it's something that people contribute to and constantly refer to throughout their time there. So I think that's, yeah, capturing and collecting those things is is really great. It's um, This is dated now because I haven't been at Walmart headquarters in quite a while and I don't know if they've changed it, but at one point there were life-size images of Sam Walton and his values and his principles, you know, cut out and posted all over the building with a quote from him or a little vignette from him right beside that cutout. Like he is still there, almost alive and in person, 
perpetuating those same stories and those same values. Okay. Now, you may or may not want to copy that. You may not believe that's a good strategy or a bad strategy, but it's a way of making some of the stories sort of live and stay inside a company. Okay. All right. So we have three. We have 10 to go. We've got hiring, making sure that we account for values. We've got leaders that are actually living the values and being transparent about the ways in which they're doing that. We have an onboarding process. What's number four? So number four is, you know, once you hire and onboard the best people, then you have to trust them to do the best work that they can. So it's this idea of value-bounded autonomy. And it's value-bounded because the values of the organization is what it tells you how to do your job. And so, you know, when you hire the best people and you micromanage them, then it totally kills the meaning in the work. And so, trust and autonomy is critical to making work meaningful. And so, the way that these organizations do it is not, you know, because leaders hear that and they're like, eh, I don't know, it's a free-for-all. And it's not a free-for-all mm-hmm. because they're so intentional about sharing the values and sharing how the values come to life and the behavior associated with their values, then they can hold their people accountable to the values and give them autonomy to execute their jobs in the best way possible. Um, And so, we actually call this principle the the Spider-Man principle, right? With great power comes great responsibility. So, they give them great power, great autonomy, but they hold them accountable to the values of the organization and to the outcomes of their performance as well. Okay. So, let me do a hypothetical on that one, because I think every employee would say, yes, cheer, please, I need more autonomy. I don't think there's anyone out there that says, please, oh, please, I need somebody to tell me what to do. Uh, I don't certainly want to be micromanaged. Okay. But today, I'm coaching a senior leader that I've known for a number of years, um, who I would argue lives by a value-based principle. And I think does a reasonably good job of that, intentionally does a good job of that. We could debate it, but I think does. There's a mistake in his organization. And it wasn't just that there was one mistake. It was actually a big mistake. And it was kind of a glaring mistake and affected customers. And so, it was sort of a big deal. Probably shouldn't have happened, but it did. And then a week later, the same kind of mistake happens again. Now, his question is going to be, I have granted a lot of autonomy. I believe people are living by principles, but something has broken down. And I think that's every leader's nightmare. Mm-hmm. Like if I, I, I want to give people autonomy and I buy into the values, but how do I manage to make sure we don't have errors in the process? So what's your response to that one? Well, I think errors are unavoidable. All these organizations that we spoke with, you know, they have what you can say a growth mindset or even like a psychologically safe environment. So psychological safety is the idea that it's safe to take risks and to make mistakes without fear of repercussion. So it's a team trust situation. And so, you know, we are all humans. No one is perfect. People are going to make mistakes. And it's how you handle the mistakes that are made. Now, some mistakes, I had a client once who had a um, one of her team members sent the wrong contract to the wrong client. It was a big, you know, in a very uh, confidential way. It ended up costing the organization $200,000 and it was a big mistake. And so, 
there are mistakes where the consequences aren't mm-hmm. like, oh, we learn, you know, and you you have to make tough choices then. But in general, um, mistakes aren't necessarily due to trusting people or they sometimes are, and sometimes they are, but in general, when you trust people and they're performing at their best and they live your values and you have accountability and you communicate with them effectively, mistakes will happen and you learn from them and you implement. Now, I don't know your specific situation or your client's specific situation, but mistakes are part of organizations. Yeah. When it's mistakes in the financial accounting, though. Yeah. We, you know, then there's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of zeros at the end of that mistake. More than five, I'm going to tell you. So it is a big deal. And it involves yeah. a customer. It's not just an internal one where you can kind of manage it a little bit better. I, any rate, I, I like the idea that I trust people. I give them more autonomy. I hold them accountable. And that trust is bounded by the values that we're expecting people to live by whatever that is. And that's also a great test whether your values are strong enough for you. Okay. All right. Number five. Number five is um, the idea that everyone within an organization is empowered to live and challenge and advance the values of the organization. So um, culture kind of belongs to everyone. And it's not just the leader's responsibility to step up if they see something wrong or if they have a good idea, um, but it's everyone's responsibility to live by those values. So I think kind of going along with um, giving people autonomy and empowering them, the idea that um, everyone has a responsibility as well to challenge um, you know, an organization's values and, and drive those forward. Okay, so here we are in one of several of my clients have a very nice culture. We're going to be very, you know, we're not going to be too confrontational with each other because we value the niceness, the family-ish style, even though these are big, big, big organizations. Okay, now which value am I going to do? I'm going to do the one that we plastered on the wall or the unwritten value that says we're going to be nice to each other. Because if I have to challenge your behavior or your decision, whether it's consistent with the values, how do I do that in a way? So we're back to that beginning question I ask you of a stated value and an unstated value and competing territory. So what's your advice there? Um, Just to make sure I understand what you're asking, like in this hypothetical situation, the company has a set of values on the wall, and then it's sort of an unspoken value that we're kind to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I usually put kind to each other as one of the values on the wall. That's not usually, you know, it comes up with some other qualities usually. Yeah. I mean, I think we should put that up up on the wall, if that's something that's valued, you know, that, that idea of being kind to each other or the idea that that fits under another value. But I think this goes back again to what we were talking about earlier, you know, like which, which value do you pull out or how do the values play out together in a particular situation? And, um, you know, that's, that's difficult to know. I think also you can, uh, in, in almost any situation I can think of, you can be kind. You, you know, you can disagree and still be kind. You can challenge people and still be kind. And I think one of the, you know, I think one of the things that we come across a lot is that there's this idea that disagreement has to be confrontational, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the leaders that we interviewed and the organizations that we've studied and the ones that, that we work with day to day, 
understand that, you know, there is such a thing as productive disagreement. You know, you can bring competing ideas to the table um, and still respect each other and, um, you know, end up disagreeing at the end of the day, even um, when a decision is made, but still be a part of the same team. Right. Great. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I've said many times on this show and even more times with everybody listening and other venues is I believe the companies that learn how to do conflict, meaning disagreement well, are the ones that are going to win because it's in that model that we learn how to challenge without being confrontational or how to challenge without damaging relationships and to have a debate that is good for everyone at the end of the day. It's fair enough. Okay, finally, this is a perfect place to take a break. With me today is Wes Adams, who is a consultant working with organizations around resilience and leadership capability, and Tamara Miles, who is also um, a specialist in resilience, I should say, and has been working with companies for a long time around peak performance. We're talking about their research into companies who have started with a purpose statement and are now saying, what do those companies do that makes work more meaningful for the employees who are inside that company? We've talked about five. To reiterate, the five are hiring, so screening for people who have the values that we've espoused as part of our purpose statement. Two is leaders actually modeling that behavior with transparency, showing up and saying ways in which they've made decisions based on the values. Three is a ritualized onboarding with storytelling that really helps people when they join understand what this place is like and feeling really welcome. And four is trusting people to do the best that they can do given that they're bounded by the values. So there's value bounded autonomy, as you said, and then empowering everyone to live or challenge the values. All right, five more to come. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. We've been talking with Wes Adams and Tamara Miles, and we have been talking about what it takes to make work meaningful. So on the assumption that you have already articulated and done a good job of articulating your purpose statement as a company, and you have values that are aligned with that purpose statement, and they are behaviorally driven so people understand what it actually means that they should be doing. What are the things that from research we can identify are going to really now make those values live and have people connect with them and find meaning in the work that they're doing? This work, a reminder, was done by interviewing a host of companies, a number of different companies, talking to C-suite leaders who had already articulated their purpose statement and uncovering the themes across these companies of what really contributes to making work meaningful. There are 10 of them, and we were just talking about five. We have five more to go. So I think, Tamara, I'm starting with you. What is number six? So number six is a pretty common sense one, and that one is the idea of fostering relationships across the organization, right? We all want to feel like we belong. We all want to feel like we're part of a team. And so these exceptional organizations work really intentionally to make that happen across the organization. So not just that I belong with my siloed team, but that I have relationships across the organization. And they do that from the very beginning, from onboarding, they will. So Google, Carla, who we interviewed at Google said that, you know, what Google does intentionally, they onboard a class together. So you're working, you're onboarding with people global from across the world and across functions, but then they, they make you schedule on your calendar touch bases with them every few months. And so by the time you leave your onboarding, you know you're going to be connecting with those people. And so that's just one example, but they also do the traditional like community volunteer work or, you know, Zoom cooking class or just something to foster a more personal relationship. Okay. And, you know, though, <laughs> it's interesting to ask how they do that in our now virtual or hybrid virtual world. It's easier to imagine it when I have people on a solid campus like Google's campus, for example, so that there's a chance to run into people on the campus. But some of these things like how you onboard people or how you keep people in touch with each other, I could imagine you could do that virtually as well as any other way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, when when we interviewed Zappos, for example, they were already virtual. It was during COVID. And they had like some really exceptional things that they were doing. Their their team that was responsible for like the employee experience, you know, 
decided to send boxes of celebratory for like when, you know, if I had a kid that was graduating high school and they missed their prom and they missed their graduation, they put together prom boxes and graduation boxes and then had a little celebration so that they marked those really meaningful personal milestones together. And they saw you, you know, they recognized that that was important. Okay. All right. So fostering these relationships, not just within my technical group or my area of specialty or my leader and my immediate pod, if you will, but across the organization in a very broad way. And I would imagine that also facilitates when we need to bring a task force together or a problem solving group together or a process thing that needs to get fixed. There are some relationships then to pull on. Okay. So that's number six, fostering relationships across the organization. What's number seven? Uh, I like that you just talked about fixing process-oriented things because number seven is about matching process to purpose and organizational values. So um, oftentimes, you know, we, we talked earlier about leadership behavior, you know, aligning with values. So essentially walking the talk and not only do leaders need to do that, but they need to structure the company so that the process and procedure of the organization Um, is supporting those values. So that can range from, um, you know, opportunities to for peer recognition programs, um, all the way to um, the way that we compensate people, right? So if we value collaboration, but you're paid on commission for only what you bring in, and that's at the expense of the rest of the team, you know, which direction are you going to go? Those are competing signals that we're sending to people. So making sure that all of those things are aligned with the values um, is, a, is very important. All right. I'm going to speculate for a moment. I want to know if I'm right, that the two most important processes to get aligned to the values have to do with compensation, recognition, reward. I'll put that as one package. And number two, promotion. Mm-hmm. Yep. You um, you nailed it. And that, and it being clear how and why people are promoted and that the, um, just like the values interview was part of the um, selection recruitment process, that is also a part of the performance management and evaluation process that happens. Right. Yes. Yes. How many times have I seen that where um, collaboration is a value that is actually believed by the company and most of the time sort of practiced, but it isn't what is necessarily um, seen, it's not transparent in the promotion or opportunity set. It then becomes mm-hmm. so much more individual. How did that person perform? Not how well did they collaborate? A couple of my clients are probably going, ooh, I won't name anybody on the phone <laughs> or on the uh, podcast. All right, so number eight. Um, number eight is really about tying an individual's day-to-day work to the higher purpose of the company. So as a leader, drawing a clear line between the work that you're doing every day and how that is achieving the larger goal of the company, and especially supporting customers, clients, making a difference in people's lives. Um, and that doesn't have to be saving the world, right? Like it can, it can be as simple as helping out a member of your team, making somebody's family life a little bit better, even just saving someone. If your application does something that saves someone time, and that means they get to spend more time with their family, that's great. You know, that's a huge bonus. So, um, you know, we work with folks at um, Microsoft in their cloud operations 
unit um, who run data centers in different parts of the world. And that's essentially setting up servers in a big warehouse located, you know, very far away from everyone else. And that can feel like, you know, pretty mundane and repetitive. And you're just like setting up racks of servers. Um, But if you're able to connect the fact that those servers are keeping our Zoom call right now running or our Teams call or, um, you, you know, helping kids get their education, helping frontline workers um, communicate with each other in the early days of COVID, that's a pretty powerful thing. Then, then you're a part of infrastructure that's you know, really changing people's lives. So this is down to a manager reminding people periodically that remember the work we're doing enables the following to happen with customers or with people in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, this is certainly something that you can do for yourself. What we studied in this research particularly and what we focus on is how leaders can help people find more meaningful work. So, as a leader, that might be when you kick off a project, um, talking about, okay, here's this project that we're going to do, but here are the people that it helps. Or even bringing in one of those people to talk to or getting them on a, a Zoom call or um, making sure that there's a connection between the work that you're doing and the people that are benefiting and that employees can see that. So it's in a way saying, what problem are we solving mm-hmm. for the world, for people, for our customers, for ourselves, and connecting the solving of that problem to the human beings that actually live with the solution. Is that a fair summary of what I need to be doing as a manager? Absolutely. And there's research that shows that when someone meets the person that they're actually helping, productivity goes up three or 400% over the following several months. So that means more contact with the average employee with customers or key customers or components of the customer. It also means more contact between an employee and the group and the other part of the organization that we're serving. And we're right back to fostering relationships across the organization. Sounds good to me. Okay, I've got it. All right, number nine. I love that you picked up on that because, you know, these principles overlap. They're not super siloed. So you're right. One goes back to the other. It feeds the other. It's a it's all like a virtuous cycle. Um, so the ninth one is this idea of engaging and embracing the whole person, um, you know, Nobody wants to wear an armor to work. You want to show up as your authentic self. And especially when COVID hit, we are all literally inside each other's homes now when we hear the dogs and we see the kids. And so this, in a lot of ways, has helped us make work more human, to be more empathetic with each other. And that's what this principle is all about. It's about encouraging people to be themselves at work, to be authentic, to show up as they are. But, you know, that is risky. It requires a lot of vulnerability for people to do that. And so it's not only encouraging that, but then also embracing that side of your teams when they do. And a great example of this from our study is the way that HubSpot took care of their teams when COVID hit. So they know that many of their employees struggle with addiction. And when COVID hit, there were no AA meetings to go to because everything shut down. So they were really concerned about the well-being of their employees. So they hired AA facilitators to host 
virtual meetings and so that their employees could continue to have, you know, their their AA meetings and continue to follow the steps. And so that's a great example of embracing the whole person and that side of the individuals that was, you know, a little vulnerable for them to expose. I, uh, I have two follow- one follow-up comment and then one follow-up question on this one. I have been saying for the last year that this notion of caring about the whole person, that if you don't get that right, you can chuck everything else out the door. You're not going to give effective feedback, courtesy of Kim Scott's radical candor kind of idea. You're not going to get engagement because why? If you don't care about me, am I going to really be engaged? I'm not really going to get innovation because I'm not willing to give you my creative idea. Why should I? I can't get psychological safety if I don't think that you care about me. Um, you're not going to really do the best for your customers because employees don't feel good. I mean, there's just sort of nothing that follows from people not feeling like they're cared for. And it's cared for as a whole human being, which is what you said, not just cared for in terms of their work environment and their work productivity. And I think that's the hardest thing for managers because they're worried about invading. Okay. Recognize they're really tight on time. I got a challenge on this recently from Mm -hmm. an Asian leader that I was working with just this week, to be honest. And the challenge was, yes, but here it would be very strange for someone to be that vulnerable. That's a little awkward. Any thoughts about? Absolutely. I mean, all of this has to be viewed through different cultural contexts, right? So a lot of these organizations that we interviewed are global and we still interviewed their North America leader. And so we, you know, so that's the lens that this research brings. And so I agree with you. And a lot of these are not binary. They're not black and white and yes or no. It's not a false dichotomy. There's a lot of nuances there. And so cultural competence and cultural context is huge. And also, it's the idea that you as a leader are creating the space for this to happen, but you're not forcing it on people either. There are people that are going to like jump right in and be fully vulnerable. And there are others even in the same context, in the same culture, that are going to be much more reserved and take a lot longer to get there. And so it's understanding that there are personal differences. Well, I think there are also personal differences within culture. So let's start the process of allowing people to be the whole human being with a little bit of vulnerability and then it's a matter of degrees. Mm -hmm. And you would never reveal everything all at one time. At any rate, it would just sort of steadily go. All right. We have three minutes, number 10. Okay. Number 10 is my favorite. Um, And that one is the idea of really embracing people's potential and creating possibilities for their development. And that one is really about, you know, this idea that we're most motivated when we have opportunities to grow and excel. And so when leaders create the space and see individuals' potential and create the space to push them and grow them, then people excel and it makes work really meaningful for them. And it's this idea of self-fulfilling prophecy almost, because if you see somebody as someone who's full of potential and you treat them like that and you give them assignments that are going to develop them like that, they're going to grow into that. And we have some stories from the research, but I know we're short on time. So it's interesting. Um, You can look at every survey around the top 100 places to work in any country, anywhere in the world, Um, or you can look at the real truth of why young talent leaves an organization, particularly minority talent, but it's true across the board. 
And opportunity to learn and grow is right up there in number one and number two positions. So there's nothing worse than feeling like I don't have any more opportunity to grow here. I'm not learning. I'm bored. And your talent is going to check right out. So this notion of seeing the potential in every human being that works for you, not just in the ones that are either like you or that are really super delivering or some version of that one. Yeah, it's like looking, looking for their potential, not just seeing, but like looking for their potential. Carla from Google said, that's one of my superpowers that she actually said that. And she, you know, she could have somebody in one role, but she's seeing a potential or strength somewhere else and then creating that new job, helping them craft that new position. Okay, perfect. All right, Wes, you got the final word. One minute, what do you want to say? I never get the last word, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, these things are not mutually exclusive. They all weave together. They're, they all tend to be a part of one another. And I think the uh, nearly every organization that we talked to said, what, you know, the, the folks that we talked to said, you know, I don't know if we're doing this the best way, but here's how we do it now. And we're always trying to figure out ways to get better and um, employee attitudes change, society changes, priorities change. And so we continue to evolve along um, with those things. And I think that's part of um, this as well, you know, making sure that, you know, you don't, you know, these things are not static, they're continuously evolving and, growing as are the people within the organizations. Perfect. I love it. So my guest today, Wes Adams and Tamara Miles, 10 practical steps with some concrete examples on what you can do to ensure that the work is meaningful for the people who work for you. And I would add, you don't have to be CEO to practice these. You could do this at any level of leadership. So thank you both. I think they're insightful. I think what I take away from this is what we always thought we needed to do is really what we always needed to do and how interrelated they all are, as we've already talked about. So thank you for being guests. To my listeners, if you like the show, please rate us. Give us a good rating on your favorite podcast server. The more you rate us, the more other people see that we're a valuable place to come and go and get some depth depth and practical advice on how to manage your career. If you'd like to know more, join our new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And otherwise, I'll see you next week for more wisdom in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.